You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. For the next two weeks, we're going to take a look at the 39 Articles of Religion. I'm going to give a brief intro to the articles, then we're going to talk about Article 1, and next week we'll talk about Article 2, maybe 3 if we get the time. Uh, and there's a method to that madness, which I'll get to in a second. But just uh, before we begin, many of you are very knowledgeable about this stuff, so please interrupt at any point to say what you know. I'm going to try to be succinct, but also sometimes the trivial tidbits are the most fun parts. Did you know that 39 articles underwent five revisions? Five. At first, the 39 articles were the 10 articles, then they were 6, 42, 39. At first, when there were 10, they were slightly Protestant. When they were reduced to 6, they were Catholic. When they were at, well, not before they went to 42, they went from being Catholic to being Roman Catholic. Uh, think Mary, or uh, think, um, sorry, um, uh, yeah, Bloody Mary. Um, when uh, she reverts the church back to Roman Catholicism. Then they go to 42 when they are, if this language doesn't make sense, let me know, but they become very reformed. Reformed being ultra-Calvinist, puritanical, if that makes sense. Again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but they were 42. And then finally, the 39 articles we, we have today, well, I'm not going to tell you exactly what they're like. I'd love it if we took a look at them and we discovered as we go. So, slightly Protestant, Catholic, Roman Catholic, pretty reformed, what we have today. What was put into effect at their finalization in 1571. So, this is a long time ago, 16th century, and there are rumors in both Episcopal and Anglican churches that the 39 articles were always kind of optional. But in 1571, with an act of parliament during Queen Elizabeth I's reign, they clergy were forced to subscribe to them. If you did not subscribe to them, you could not be a clergy person in the Church of England. So to say they were optional is pretty loosey-goosey. They were, and to this day, at least on the books, are the doctrinal position of the Church of England. Uh, now, when we get to the global Anglican communion in Australia, in the U.S., things get a little bit more like, well, if you'll notice in our prayer book, it's in the historical documents section. So not binding, but they're supposed to be important, uh, which gets to some of our kind of Anglican fudge, loosey-goosey kind of ways. Um, Nevertheless, they are very important, and that's all I want to say about that. If you've got any interesting tidbits, let me know. But the first five of them are about the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. I think the most important things of our faith. Who is God? Who is Jesus? Uh, now, you would think that Thomas Cranmer would putting together his articles, would make them from scratch. The first two, he doesn't at all. The first two articles are almost word for word stolen 
from the Augsburg Confession. The Augsburg Confession it was the Lutheran Confession over in Germany. So obviously, obviously they're in English, uh, but the first two articles, almost word for word, are ripped from that confession with a few uh, tidbits, a few things added, which we'll get to later. Uh, now, interestingly, when you think of the 16th century, when you think of the Protestant Reformation, what do you think of? What are they all on about in the Protestant Reformation? Bringing the word of the people. Bringing the word of the people. Corruption in the church. Yeah, and in, in England it was a little like, how do we navigate Rome ultimately splitting? Think justification by faith alone. So all of these very Protestant, all of these very reformational um, ideas are in the 39 articles. But interestingly enough, they're not in the first few. Why is that? Well, and I think this is to their credit, to Thomas Kramer and others, the ones who all put it together, they subordinated the controversial matters of their day, which would be in the later articles, so it's not like they don't have them there, pressing and urgent as these issues were, they subordinated them to the restatement of the primitive gospel message of the church. Now, if you go to the Church of Ireland articles, or if you go to the Westminster Confession of Faith, how do those confessions begin? They begin with theological method, or they might even begin with the work of Christ. But here in the 39 articles, we begin with who and what is God. And that's purposeful. It's uh, when you hear about the Church of England being a Protestant church, being a church of the Reformation, that is true, but there's also truth to the fact that the, the Thomas Cranmer and others were also trying to remain Catholic. And what I mean by that is a part of the universal church. Uh, they're not trying to, my words, unfair words, throw the baby out with a bathwater. I'm not saying other churches were necessarily doing that, but other churches were highlighting here is where we are disagreeing on very important matters of the day. And again, Thomas Kramer and others thought these issues were very important. But they begin here with what all Christians, at least hopefully all Christians, agree on. The Trinity and Jesus being fully human, fully divine. Interestingly enough, a lot of 20th century theology, whether you're Roman Catholic, whether you're Protestant, uh, it's a little bit different than 39 Articles way of doing theology. Most of the 20th century theology, um, we, we, we start with Jesus and move backward. Now, I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with that, um, but it's interesting to note the distinction. Here we begin with who is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Who is Jesus, fully human, fully divine, before we get into what does his work mean for us? And a lot of 20th century theology is very into what Jesus did for us on our behalf, and I'm very into that. Um, but again, when you're writing down the doctrinal statements of your church, the order matters, the presentation matters. So why don't we actually look at the article? Uh, maybe you have it on your phones. 
uh, 39 Articles of Religion. This is Article 1, and it's called Of Faith in the Holy Trinity. It goes like this. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now that is a mouthful. What does this sound like? The creed. This sounds a whole lot like the creed. Now, there are other words in there as well that maybe you don't find in the creed. Um, but interestingly enough, we begin our doctrinal statement of the Church of England by declaring God's unity and God's transcendence, not in the language of the scriptures, but in that of Platonism. Do you guys remember Plato back in college or grade school? Um, the creeds are essentially trying to tell us what the Bible teaches, but the creeds use the intellectual milieu of their day. Uh, honestly, this is no different than what you and I do, right? When we read the scriptures, when we try to explain what the Christian faith is like to our neighbor, uh, especially toward maybe those who don't have a background in faith, we explain it not not saying the exact words of scripture, but we explain it in words that maybe they can resonate with. Again, not divorced from the language of scripture, not something contrary to, but it's, it's the way Christianity has been from the beginning. It's what makes it uh, very unique, especially in, with regard to the major religions, especially with regard to Islam. We have always viewed ourselves as missionary in that there's a translatability of the gospel. And in these articles, it's really, it's in the headspace of middle Platonism. Now, there was probably a period in my life where I would have been like, whoa, not cool. Um, now, I think I just kind of explained a little bit of why. It's explaining to those around us in the intellectual milieu of our time how the, how the faith makes sense. What is the faith? Now, why did they use this platonic milieu, uh, this philosophical terminology, and why is it still cool for us to use, even as we can translate it into the milieu of our own day? Well, this terminology expressed two points about God's being um, that the early church fathers and mothers found emphasized in the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets like Isaiah. Um, what they found emphasized there is that God is one and God is without rival. Next time you read Genesis, you know, it's, it's hinting at the fact that it's saying, worship the Lord your God and him only. But you know, the language is above all other gods. In the prophets, we really get God is one. There is no other. God has no rival. Um, that's where it's really emphasized. And the early church fathers and mothers saw that this, these Platonists talked about it similarly to the prophets, and that here's where we can really kind of, in the words of St. Augustine, 
uh, plunder the Egyptians for the goods that they have for translating the gospel. So the Platonic philosophers, who were definitely not adopted wholesale by people of the early church, they shared the prophet's hostility toward uh, anthropomorphic ideas of God. Anthropomorphic, that means like, um, well, we'll get to it in a minute, but like, what is all that language about God not having parts? Um, again, we're going to get to that in a minute, but they're really trying to emphasize that, you know, though the Greeks and the Romans talk about these gods in such like human ways and in, in crude ways, that is not how we talk about the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, so yeah, let's continue. Um, and, and take a look at it on your phone again, or I'm going to talk about it, but it might be helpful to, to see it. Again, there is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions. What are we saying? So let's go word by word. When we say that God is everlasting, what's going on here? We're essentially saying that this world is full of things that end, full of good things that end. God does not end. That sounds simple, right? Everlasting. That's probably the most simple term used. Now, when we say that God is without body, parts, or passions, we are saying the world is full of things that are limited by their bodies. I'm not just talking about human bodies. Just things out there have bodies. Uh, but God does not have a body. You know how a lot of times when we think about God, we, I mean, whatever it is for you, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, this is just being human. We kind of imagine God as something, or we think of God as up in the sky. Um, but God is without body, um, which means like, so when we think about the ascension and the, the scriptures use language like he ascended into heaven, uh, are, we, are we saying we think he went into outer space? No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We can't see him. Uh, he is in that place where God is not bound by bodies. And again, not just human bodies, but I mean, on one level, he has a body, right? Uh, in his son, in his human form. But we're, we're really focusing in on the being of God in Article 1. So, and I'm going to keep going and... Um, as I keep going, hopefully I'll make certain things clearer. Go ahead. But he has a body. He has a body in Jesus, yes. Well, he has a, God has a body. And we'll get to that, Genesis, Article 2. I think what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's why a lot of the church fathers say very interesting things about how when we see God in the form of the burning bush, when we see God... Uh, that person in the furnace, along with um, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, that God in Jesus makes an appearance even there. So when, when the wor words are used, he walks among them in the garden, um, would they have seen a, a form? Uh, maybe, probably. But, the, but in some sense, it's, uh, God is not bound by that. Um, and I, I know you you know that and you're saying that. And I hope we'll make this clearer as we go. Yeah, um, are you going to define what they mean by passion? Yes, we, we will get there okay. in a second. Um, and if I don't, uh, remind me too. Because, yeah, that's actually a very important one. I guess in the 20th century theology, that is where 
people have the, the biggest problem with you know, classical Trinitarian theology, uh, which I don't know if it's as big a problem as people think. But hopefully we'll get there again. Sorry if this stuff is up here. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about why this matters uh, as we go. Um, we also, I mean, one of the key terms here is he's infinite as opposed to finite. Uh, again, the bounds that we put on God that are fine when we're praying and thinking about God. But on one level, when we really think about it, the bounds have to be removed. If you have a conversation with a secularist and they're like, well, what are you talking about? Like, God, yeah. this, this, this language can be really helpful, are these philosophical ideas. Now, uh, what is, Article 1 is really emphasizing that though God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we also have to, and though God is personal, we have to hold together the fact that God is also mystery. Uh, God is beyond our comprehension. God is other. Um, nevertheless, this God who is transcendent, who is other, who is uncreated, can be known. He's mystery, but not just mystery. He has made himself known. Um, and here are what some of the words that were the next couple words, power, wisdom, goodness. God is, has power in that he has made himself known as Lord or, or King. Uh, God has wisdom in that he is the one from whom no secret is hid. God has goodness in that he is the source of all that is good. So now, and I'll admit, this kind of language is not my favorite. I love the, you know, what I call the ghetto gospel, the radical good news of the gospel. But for us to get there, we need this, these abstractions. Um, we need this theism, um, not because it's opposed to the vital evangelical message that we have to proclaim, but our evangelical message is weakened without upholding the fact that God is transcendent, that God is other. Why? So the gospel tells us of a God who shows us his love in Jesus, the God-man who takes on a body. Uh, but that message of him dying on the, on the cross on our behalf and in our place is useless unless this loving God is also the ruler of the universe. Um, now, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. To say that God is one who is, is, is one, God is other, God is transcendent, uh, assures us that the love that he shows us in Christ, um, that this is who God is. God is not going to change. He's not going to be supplanted by some alien force. God is one. God is without rival. He is all-powerful. And that's why we can trust that the work he's done for us on our behalf uh, is the final word. Um, uh, some of this stuff I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about skipping, but let me see what I want to keep. Um, and to, to say that God is without body, this is kind of the, the good news of the ascension on one level, tells us that the divine love, which was local in the body of Jesus, is, is now, it's everywhere. Uh, now, it was everywhere before Jesus, right? Because Jesus is one in being with God. Jesus is the word with God before he becomes incarnate. Um, but when we say he's without body, what we're saying is he is equally accessible 
at every time and place. Now that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, we actually have it better than the disciples long ago, right? We, we might think, wouldn't it be great to be like this with Jesus? But on one level, in, in Jesus' self-limitation, becoming one of us, he can only be but now that he has gotten rid of his self-limitation, he is who he's always been. He's accessible to us at all times and at all places. Does that make sense? Uh, that's part of why this is good news. Um, yeah, some of this I, I really want to skip. Um, when we say that he's without parts, I mean, this might sound weird, but it's to deny that he is a product of historical composition. He's, we are susceptible to dissolution. God is not. Um, to say that he's without passions uh, means that his purpose can't be deflected by any force anywhere from the resolve to show us love. Does that make sense? So we, we do see in the, in the Bible, God wrathful, God angry, God loving. And we need to uphold that. And, some, and this is where the philosophical language might not help us all the time. But the purpose of that term, of this kind of stoic term, uh, is to essentially say that God is, has decided from eternity to be for us. And there's, no, there's not going to be a change in emotion to veer him off course. Does that make sense? Uh, and, and classically, theologians have said, God in Jesus, in his humanness, suffers, but the Word, who is one in being with God, does not. Because that would mean God changes. Now, this is like really high-level stuff uh, that you can bang your head against the wall. But, I mean, some of, some of you, th two of you, are going to be super fascinated by this uh, and, and go places with it. But even for those of you who aren't, we're going to get to why this is good news. So... We need the task of theology, according to the smartest theologians we have, is to maintain the proper tension between transcendence and God in Christ's incarnate nearness. Why is that important? Because there, there is no good news if... So we all love the story about how Jesus becomes one of us, suffers dies, and yeah, it's efficacious for us. But the reason why it's efficacious for us is because God in Jesus is at the same time transcendent and imminent, right? If, if, Jesus, if all the story we had to say is Jesus is like us and he died for us for our sins, well, then Jesus would have just died. And it, you know what I mean? Um, but the fact that Jesus is also transcendent, he's also God, means that it's not merely this inspiring story, like in uh, Braveheart, right? Braveheart, you have William Wallace, at least in the movie, <laughs> who dies, and uh, you might even say he dies for Scotland, and then Scotland, as a result, rises up. Uh, but we're, what we're saying is much more than that Jesus is a moral example or an inspiration. What we're saying is what he did was efficacious. And the reason why it's efficacious is because he is both incarnate and transcendent. If we find comfort in asserting that God is near, 
that God shares our human weaknesses and limitations, that God is vulnerable to the same accidents and grief we are, without the transcendence, well, like millions of people undergo all of the, the grief, suffering. The power of what Jesus has done for us on our, on our behalf is that we maintain the transcendence, that God, while being one of us, is also other, that God in Jesus, when he dies, it's not merely an inspiring example. Death could not hold him down. And that's why Article 1 upholds what the church fathers had said from the beginning. We've got to maintain this tension between transcendence and eminence. Again, a lot of these phrases we've just read, they're, they're cool philosophical negatives that conjure up a distance between God and all created things. Um, but it's, it's to do that very, th- it's to hold it all together. And as you'll see, as you read the articles, it, re- it gets into the nearness, the incarnateness. Uh, now, I'm glad you brought up passions because some modern theologians, uh, they have taken issue with especially the passion language that God in some sense in God's being is passionless. And I think, yeah, we can go to the scriptures. Um, at times, maybe those parts of the scriptures where it talks about God being super angry, maybe that is an anthropomorphism, like a projecting a human emotion onto God. Um, other times it's, yeah, maybe maybe the tension is real. Maybe, maybe we should have issue with this kind of language. Um, yeah. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to take the love of God away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this is where it is, like, kind of a, you can see why our, our contemporaries are like, well, do you, does upholding this, especially the, without passions, does that take away from the vital gospel message? He's not going to get so angry that he's like, I'm done with him forever. Right. Even though, you know, in the Old Testament, sometimes he even says that and then reneges on that. Um, he's decided to be defined or whatever as a God of love, and that's his consistency yeah. apart from him. Yeah. yeah, and I'm not saying you have to necessarily agree with all this wholesale. In fact, lots of Anglicans and Episcopalians have had questions about some of this. But I think we have to take it seriously, see what it's doing. I, I would say that I tend to be a, what's called a classical theist. I, I, I really do think that this, this maintaining the tension between God's otherness and God's nearness is really helpful. I mean, all those like Richard Dawkins critiques of you know, the God delusion, all, all of these things can be, they're, they're tearing down straw men if you believe in the classic theological statements of the church. Um, God is not just like some big man in the sky. Um, what, what, and this is not some new idea. This is the early church. It's God is other, um, which is hard to even wrap your mind around, right? Because everything we think of is created. God is uncreated. Um, and that's when, when you really think about that, that's when this language seems to make 
a bit more sense. And really, what, what the early church fathers are, 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 are thinking through while reading their scriptures is, again, not to make God cool and distant, but really all of this for them, because they are smart, they saw through the straw man that come 2,000 years later, and they're saying, how do we uphold the vital evangelical message that there was one man who died for us and on in our place and on our behalf and that is efficacious for all of us in him for all time it's because god and jesus who became one of us is also other is also beyond death beyond change hopefully that's helpful <laughs> Again, you can be like, I don't think there's anything wrong with not having thought through this stuff in detail, but you might as well. Give it a shot. Um, let, me, let me see if there's anything else I think I... Um, and I think it helps us today, too. Again, Christians have believed in the translatability of their faith from the beginning. Unlike, right, with Islam, it's like you can't even translate the Quran into English. It, you, it has to be read in Arabic for it to be the word of God. We've always believed in the translatability of our faith. That's the, the missionary aspect of our faith. And that means that we can do that today in our own language, in our own milieu. Now, we should do it with fear and trembling, and we shouldn't do it on our own. Uh, again, we have these creeds and we have these articles that were put together over centuries with many minds. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, just think about when, when in Craig's sermon or Cameron's sermon, if you were over there, they're unpacking the scriptures, but the sermon is not just reading John 3.16 and then saying John 3.16. It's trying to unpack it, um, in our own milieu. So at its best, what's called the, what we've been talking about it's called the via negativa, or the negative theology. And it serves theology well. You can't have this alone. You can't focus on the mystery of God alone. But it establishes one pole of the tension that must be preserved in the statement of the gospel. And that, that, that one pole is that for the cross to matter, God, as we know in Jesus, is like one of us, is one of us. At the same time, God is transcendent and other. God is without rival. God is not going to change God's mind about being for us. Oh. God is not going to... Yeah. So Ben, what does it mean that we're created in God's image? Does it mean we just look at ourselves as created like Jesus? I always, like with the Trinity, maybe this is even communally wrong. Divide them all three up. There's God, there's Jesus, there's the Holy Spirit. And I. I don't think we need to beat ourselves up about it, no, but yeah. But I have to remind myself they're in perfect unity. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they could be, they are one of the same. Yeah. And notice this, the article ends with that. It, 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 it goes from like very transcendent, and it's, it's on purpose. It goes from very transcendent to the name of God, the Father. The Father. The Son and the Holy Ghost, and it is true. Like it's one in being, he's called the Father. Yeah, and one in being, and yet distinct, right? Yeah. Uh, 
It's the mystery of the Trinity, which is why some of this is, I, I find it really frustrating even trying to communicate it, because it is, it is a mystery. It is, I mean, as, as much as the gospel message is simple, and thanks be to God that it's simple, but like C.S. Lewis said, like rocket science, if you, if you get into it deeply, it gets deep. And we, we, yeah, we, we also can't be Christians like, well, if it's not deep, it's probably not true or whatever. It's like, well, no, like both are true. It's, you can proclaim our faith to a child. You can also send, spend your whole life studying it. And on one level, you, you submit to the mystery. Obviously, it, we also believe he's been revealed in the cross. But yeah, the uncreatedness of God. Again, how do we even... It's like thinking about infinity. Um, let me see if there's one last thing. I think that was pretty much it, but um, it's all, I'll end with this, and it might be helpful, it might not be, but there's an early church father. His name is Athanasius. Um, Athanasius has an incredible story. He's known as Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. And what people really were saying was Athanasius against the church because Athanasius got exiled, I think, seven times during his life, Egyptian. Um, and he went through that whole like period of the early church where it's like, well, do we believe in the Trinity? Do we believe that Jesus is one in being with God? And Athanasius stood up for the Trinity and the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human. He especially was, was in for that. Um, but by the end of his life, he saw the, essentially, what would become the, the Nicene, not just the, the, the Nicene Council, but Constantinople which is where the Nicene Creed comes from. Uh, and what he said at one point is, about God, is that, again, that word, impassibly, he suffered. God is impassable. God, in God's being, can't suffer. But God, taking on flesh like one of us, suffered. And he ends it with that by saying, essentially, it's a paradox, it's a mystery, we must hold these intention. Uh, so maybe you feel intention right now, <laughs> but maybe that's, that's what they're trying to do. What were you saying, Debbie? Sorry. I said there's a beauty to that, though. Yeah. I mean, he pers- the forsaking of Jesus on the cross. Yeah. And that not that God where the tension, yeah. they're one in being, yeah. and yet on some level, like the father turns his face away. On one, on one level, he can't, right? God can't be ripped. And yet, again, that tension. And, and as you read your scriptures, I think you're going to find that tension more and more. Yeah. Uh. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.